Welcome to the Future Law Podcast, the show that looks at where the law has been and more importantly, where it's going. I'm Dan Hunter. I'm a law dean and a researcher in artificial intelligence and law and legal tech at Queensland University of Technology. In this episode, Mike Madison is going to be talking with Eddie Hartman, the founder of LegalZoom. LegalZoom is the automated environment to create all sorts of legal documents and is really world leading. Eddie is a fascinating character. Not only did he create LegalZoom, but he also did the unusual reading of law, which is possible sometimes in the States. Take a listen. Eddie Hartman, welcome to the Future Law Podcast. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. So you are known uh, primarily, uh, especially in the U.S., as one of the co-founders of LegalZoom and as an uh, emphatic and enthusiastic advocate of access to justice principles throughout the, the legal system. What are you up to today? How do you spend most of your time these days? Well, you, do you, would you like to hear the fanciest title that I have, Mike? Absolutely. I am a founding member of the Access to Justice Committee at the Hague Institute for International Law. That is awesome. What, what, what does that actually mean? What are you actually <laughs> doing uh, with this organization? Actually, uh, and I shouldn't joke, it's a great organization. Sam Miller and his crew at The Hague are, are awesome, uh, issuing white papers, working with ministers of justice around the world. It's a crazy thing, Mike, to sit down with the minister of justice for Rwanda, for example. I, Chief Justice from Rwanda. I was lucky enough to sit across the table uh, from that man, thinking about what he has seen, you know, in his compared to me. Like, who the heck am I? So yeah, I, I I shouldn't poke fun. It was just the title, you know, the title that I I'm somehow a you know member of a Hague body on instant international law is just it's it's amusing to a guy who has only set foot in law school in order to teach at law school. That's that's the only law school I have. But you are a licensed lawyer, right? So you went through the, the system in California. You have a law license. In two respects, I want to draw out something uh, beginning with that, that point about the work that you're involved in in The Hague, and in addition to other uh, consulting and other things that you're doing in legal technology today. And one is that something we've talked about on this podcast previously, which is that challenges and opportunities associated with the future of law is a global conversation. It's not limited to one sector. It's not limited to one geography. It's not limited to new lawyers. It touches existing lawyers. It's pretty much all aspects. And two, those conversations don't limit themselves to lawyers, right? Technically, you are a licensed lawyer, but that's not your primary calling card. It's not your primary skill set and contribution. And I really wanted to talk with you today, especially about your vision for how these conversations are emerging, whether it's dealing with court systems, legal tech, law practice, other respects. Who's at these tables? Who should be participating? How do we get the right people into the room? Well, let's be charitable, Mike. We assume that some of the people at the table are people who are trying to protect the public from people who, you know, don't know enough about law to practice law, right? I'm sure that that's true. We're grownups, right? Some of the people, some of the people that are promulgating the regulations that restrict law do so because they would like to preserve law for lawyers, this, you know, classically in the 1920s, uh, the end of the 1920s, lawyers saw what had happened to medicine, which had lost pharmacies, right? They'd lost the ability 
to reg to consider pharmacists. Part of what they do is very lucrative trade. You know, and then obviously a lot of other adverse things happened in America at the end of the 1920s and boom, throughout the 1930s, we get unauthorized practice of law statutes that wind up in every single state. Another thing, Mike, when you try to pro hoc vice into another state, studies have been done. Smaller states have much higher requirements than larger states. And I think it's a, a logical inference. They don't want the big city lawyers pouring into their state and taking away the jobs. Of course they don't. I get that. To a certain extent, I understand that people who are market participants need, they need to do that. That's just practical, right? The problem is, of course, when you say who's at the table, the people making the regulations are also the market participants. And we can immediately see how that can lead to, let's say, some questionable decisions. Yeah, yeah. So, so how do you how do you strategize getting more and different people at that table at additional tables, right? So there's reform with, from within. There is competition and disruption from the outside. Different combinations of people. So let's so they make it concrete. Suppose I'm going to have a version of this conversation with somebody who's coming into the legal profession today. They're in a law school today. They're about to get a license and become a, a member of the legal profession. What kind of advice and guidance do you give that person in terms of how to think about mapping their way forward career-wise, making sure that they keep their eyes on both their own career development and professional success, but also on the kind of impacts on the world, the kind of justice in the world that we expect lawyers in the legal system to produce. Well, let's start with the uh, what I believe to be fairly, fairly easy prediction that law firms and lawyering as a profession are not going anywhere, especially larger law firms. When you think about who's going to litigate on your behalf, you want a brand name, right? So the first thing that lawyers need to do when they think about disruption, I would say, is calm down a bit. You know, law as a profession will endure. No question. We need lawyers. That's one of the lessons we learned at LegalZoom. People really like a lawyer. They like having a lawyer. They like to be able to trust, speak to, you know, a lawyer, not a nurse, a doctor, not a, you know, someone with, you know, self-service. No, they want a, They want a lawyer. They, I get that. A person leaving law school today, however, might think about the fact that as with every profession, innovation is happening and law has kept it out for a long time. I heard a bar president in the Midwest say, you know, we have put a wall around the practice of law for more than a century and it is held, but the cracks are now showing. The water is now breaching. So, okay, if you would like to be in the business of advancing the profession of law, I would say, do you need to do traditional lawyering? Could you partner, for example, with the same sort of bright young non-lawyers uh, that led to Kira systems, right? That led to, uh, you know, uh, CS Disco that led to, and not, not that Kiwi is not a lawyer, he is. But he partnered with non-lawyers, you know. C could you uh, become a, a person who makes her fortune and her path in the world uh, in, a, in a different way uh, by embracing change instead of uh, just sort of going with the status quo? And if you're really brave, and Mike, I think this is where you're going, could you lend some of your brain power to changing law from within? So if you're not going to change law from without by starting the next, you know, Legal Zoom, Rocket Lawyer, Kira Systems, you know, any of the many wonderful companies that are out there, maybe change it from within. And to do that, we need help because there's real pressure 
from the outside and convincing the people who make these regulations, who are often market participants themselves, uh, means I think the only way to do it is with a, a groundswell. Enough people, enough good people saying we need the rules to be fair. So how do you, let's talk through the mechanics of getting people into those conversations. One of the things that's interested me recently, talking with uh, additional folks out there around the world around change and change management, is the default process of legal education, legal analysis, learning systems of precedent and court systems and tradition and so forth, is very much a, a, a pattern recognition exercise. Right? So there's a, a basic set of legal analysis skills. We put law in a bunch, bunch of boxes, contract or obligation, property, tort, constitutional law, criminal law. And then step one, recognize a problem as existing in one box or a couple of boxes. Step two, which sub box within that category does the problem exist in? Three, identify the relevant rule or principle or precedent. Four, apply the rule, derive an outcome or, or a solution. We train new lawyers very, very well in that pattern recognition mode. We don't, as a matter of institutional practice in law schools, teach people complex problem solving, wicked problem solving, to borrow the phrase from engineering or management programs. And reforming the legal profession today, the intersections between law firms and courts and private companies and nonprofits and governments, that's a complex problem. It's not the sort of thing that lends itself to recognize the pattern, apply the rule, solve the problem. So I'm wondering if you've given thought to how you get people who are trained as lawyers to grapple effectively with this different kind of large-scale systems problem that we're all looking at. <laughs> Mike, I would say the first thing is you have done a classic lawyer thing, which is feed me the assumption that the participants need to be lawyers. Ah, there you go. Okay. Now, how did we, how did we cure polio in America? And I'm going to use polio because any other conversation about vaccines becomes, uh, you know, fiery, but like polio. Okay. To fight. And my, my, by the way, back to my dad, my dad had polio. Okay. So near and dear to my heart. Uh, eradicating polio in the United States for smallpox. Pick your pick your 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 thing that people aren't going to barricade bridges with trucks over. All right, but whatever dread disease of the past. How did we do it? Was it just doctors? Was it just you know Jonas Salk going door to door with a hypoder? No, of course not. You had people creating awareness, right? You had marketers. You had people on logistics. You know the U.S. the army was involved. You had so many different participants coming together. So I think the first thing we need to fight as lawyers is our disposition to assume that lawyers have to also provide the answer almost exclusively, right? The first thing we need to ask ourselves is, can, can we borrow from groups of people? Um, and I would say, you know, people like Rebecca Sandefleur at the ABA, who are not lawyers, but can do a great job with, say, statistics. Now, why statistics? Because one of the things that legislators are going to want to know is, what is the impact of this? Will this actually help people? Right. We, we need to bring together people, uh, investors, for example. Uh, why investors? Well, we created a, you know, a not, not we, of course, but there's a regulatory sandbox that's been created in, in uh, you know, in, in a state that allows uh, law to be practiced in a different way. But why? You know, without investment, why would people take a chance on that? Right. So there, I think we need we need people of all different 
you know, uh, backgrounds to come together uh, and find the solution. I'm sorry, Mike, it looked like you're maybe about to say something. No, I just, I'm reflecting uh, on two things. So first, you mentioned Jonas Salk, and I'm sitting in Pittsburgh. Uh, you probably know, uh, although our listeners to the podcast may not, that most of the research that Jonas Salk did in developing his polio vaccine, a lot of the community testing of the vaccine was done at the University of Pittsburgh, was done in Pittsburgh, uh, Western Pennsylvania, where Pittsburgh is enormously proud of the contribution that this community made. And as you said, it was a community effort. It wasn't just a single heroic person. And so just reflecting a little bit about transferring the idea of an all-in, all-party, multifaceted effort to attack polio as a complex problem and the analogy between that and the all-effort, all-in, all-sided uh, way to uh, approach justice system reform, access to justice, legal system reform, and so forth. The the additional thing I wanted to say, though, is that with developing a polio vaccine, as I understand the history in that particular example, the disease, polio, was so broadly distributed and so traumatic that it wasn't so difficult to get a community engaged in this effort because of the trauma that so much of the community had experienced before. So motivating many, many different players and actors and organizations and funders was not simple, but there was not an enormous barrier to getting that done. I wonder about the comparable kind of motivating and unifying force relative to law. How do we get investors and funders to participate in these conversations and to be effective in these conversations. Rebecca Sandifer at the ABA is a very, very well-known and highly impactful researcher on uh, questions of access to justice. But if we want more social scientists and more humanists and more management folks and so forth to be participating in this, how do we persuade them that this is the fight that they should be engaged in? Such a great question. and. I wish I had a better answer for you, Mike, because we all know the statistics by now, right? We know that the famous New York City, 90% of landlords in an eviction matter are represented by a lawyer and 10% of tenants are uh, in an eviction matter are represented by an attorney. You know, a, a certain population of uh, primarily dads in the California courts trying to get custody of a child go in represented by a lawyer and it's a terrifyingly small percentage for something as important as trying to see your own child, but that by the time the judgment is reached, the number of dads represented by a lawyer drops to half of what it was because so many of them have gone bankrupt trying to pay their legal fees, right? And we know from Jillian Hadfield that Ferguson, Missouri is largely explained by people, young men by and large, who could not get access to a lawyer to help them in the courts. We had a penal system in that in Ferguson that was profit motive, uh, if you read Law for Flat World. And we saw the firestorm that erupts. So when people are not given their day in court, when people are not given access to justice, we see that massive problems arise, whether it's heartbreak or you know quite a bit of civil disobedience. So the, uh, or uh, uncivil disobedience, I guess I should say. The, the, the thing is, if these sorts of examples have not gotten people involved from the social sciences, then I think we need to take a step back and say, how do we involve them? What is the right thing? How, how can we bring more Rebecca Senefers into the equation? Because right now, if we said, okay, the person to convince is a chief justice of a state Supreme Court, 
where's the body of work to bring to that individual? I, I feel like there's quite a bit more to be done. Offline, you were giving me a, a summary of a experience you had recently to illustrate the power of law and technology collaborations. You and some colleagues worked with the state of California in helping to design a system to effectively distribute benefits to California residents in the context of the COVID pandemic. I wonder if you could walk that through for us as an example of the power of cross-disciplinary collaborations. Yeah, I just happened to, uh, through a bizarre and serendipitous coincidence, be introduced to the deputy director, uh, Lynn Liebert von Koch, who's, by the way, an amazing person, uh, who, who articulated this problem. The state of California had all this rental relief money to be distributed. Imagine you're a family hit by COVID. Maybe the business that you were working at has shuttered. Maybe it was a restaurant. Or maybe the bus line that you took to your work is no longer operating. And you, you're facing housing insecurity, but no problem. The state doesn't want people on the street. And so they've got this pool of money, $7 billion from the federal government, $7 billion to be distributed. Well, unfortunately, the red tape, the legal requirements of applying for that money, complex. And the state of California had tried to put an application up and they, they'd done a, you know, the best job they could. They, they really did. But a very, very small amount of money had been distributed. It wasn't $7 billion that had been distributed or six or five or four or three or two or even one. It wasn't even $100 million and they'd been at it for a while. And what we did was we brought together exactly as I'm saying, Margaret Hagan, uh, professor of design at Stanford University, Scott McDonald, fantastic guy in terms of uh, marketing, you know, just knows how to get the word out there. Uh, my own son, 17 year old, who's just a whiz at mobile apps. Uh, and then we did a lot of research. We, we did it, in other words, not just with lawyers, but interdisciplinary. And I'm proud to say that after we made the changes to this you know, quasi-legal pathway, we have now had applications for 495,000 families who are going to get that $7 billion to stay off the streets and in their homes. Awesome. I think that's an amazing story. And it's an example of how you know, in, an interdisciplinary approach to the problems that are presented by lack of access to legal talent facing these, these complex situations can be overcome and can have a real world impact. So I'm super proud of that. I'm super proud of that effort. But I think there's a multitude of other scenarios just like that one where a solution doesn't come about. So let me steer this conversation into a private sector register, meaning the same question of how to get people motivated and engaged and participating in solving problems in the legal system at large scale and at small scale, uh, large scale and small scales. But now talking about legal tech and innovation and entrepreneurship in the marketplace more broadly. So how do you think about how to get investors, entrepreneurs, founders, uh, and, and others to participate in identifying and solving problems at that end of the system? Yeah. Well, if we said that the issue with trying to bring more, uh, let's just call them good-hearted altruists into this, into this problem is challenging because all of the efforts so far to sort of raise awareness about the iniquity of not being able to have a lawyer to help you through some of the most challenging situations in life, if that hasn't worked, then what will? And I think it's simple. Money. Money does work, right? So in 2021, three companies went public, all in legal tech. And that's great. There are a lot of other incredible companies that are doing amazing 
you know, and they're at the maybe the uh, periphery of what we consider to be the battle for access to justice. But I think that's okay if we're bringing lawyers and technology and marketing and everything else together to create great brands. You know, I think that's part of the battle. I don't see anything wrong with market solutions to the access to justice question and the periphery, right? Making lawyers more efficient so that they can help more people. Because I think lawyers are fundamentally great people, you know. I, I named my son Darrow after Clarence Darrow, you know. Lawyers are among our best people, but here's the thing. We are encumbered by a law school debt. We have to make a living. Unlike a consultant or, you know, another sort of professional, we socked our money into a JD and we socked our youth into the practice of law. What the heck are we going to do? We have to make a living at this, right? So money is a motivator for lawyers. Money should be a, a motivator to expand, to work with others in order to come up with a solution. And I would point to the many outfits that are out there that are doing really, really well as alternatives to traditional law firm become more and more acceptable. And we're not talking about access to justice at, I think, the the lowest levels, what people think of, you know, somebody not being able to get a lawyer to defend them in court. Okay, that, we're not talking about that necessarily. But things that are just as important in terms of the stress on an individual and the the idea of like, this is part of what it means to be, uh, to have, you know, uh, to be an American, for example, to, you know, be able to get your uh, way through the legal system. So let me not uh, return to the mistaken premise that I used in the earlier question that uh, that lawyers necessarily need to be leaders in this aspect of growing new ventures. Money is a motivator. Money motivates lawyers as well as it motivates, uh, but it may be in different respects that it motivates members of other professions. But I'm thinking about investors. I'm thinking about entrepreneurs. I'm thinking about founders, people who are more stereotypically and classically associated with new business formation, people who don't necessarily have law degrees or people who go through law school but don't aim to go into the practice of law. How do we steer them? How do we train them effectively, create opportunities for them, reward them in the market appropriately? How do we, to be very concrete, how do you get a venture capitalist off the sideline and start to put money into a new legal tech venture? Yeah. So I, I think it, for a while there was a bit of a chicken and an egg problem. Let's look at what the signal on this problem is. Let's IRAC it, right? You know, so if you look at the UK where some of the, the New South Wales, but then the UK where some of the first changes to the way that law was regulated happened uh, beginning, you know, last last two decades. The initial report said, wait a second, but it's not having a big bang. We thought investment would come flooding in. And we're hearing the same thing about Utah and Arizona. Oh, man, we thought investment would just come flooding in. Where's all the investment? Well, would you invest? Would you drop $1,000, $10,000, of your money into uh, an area that you know could be snatched away at a moment? regulatory sandbox, right? I mean, does, this does not sound like a durable space for investment. What we need to do instead is show that actually these companies are going places and have exits. Now, there's two great things about the current state. Three, I'm going to give you three. If you read Jay Um at uh, Six Parsecs, she'll paint the picture for you that investment in legal tech is swelling. And that's partially because for the first time, companies are finding exits, meaning they're able to go you know, IPO uh, uh, or they're being purchased in such a way that there's a return for the investor. The greatest, largest, and most unsung legal tech, DocuSign, right? Now, admittedly, any company in the NASDAQ 
uh, any company that's sort of tech related has had a rocky like mid 2021 into 2022 and DocuSign and the legal tech uh, companies are, are, are no exception to this. However, the sheer fact of an exit, the sheer fact that there's a return on this is making it very attractive for investors, much more so than it was when we'd been decades without a company going public. You know, Axiom was supposed to, and then Axiom didn't, and it's a big heartbreak. But beyond that, we also see the presence of very, very large accounting firms also realizing, now, wait a second, we can add this to our stack of deep business processes. We can go beyond accounting and into the legal practice of tax. Wow, huge. So for many reasons, it's a field that's just, well, again, the, the numbers speak for themselves. Money's flowing in. One of the things I hear in that summary is that as the environment gets more mature, the environment gets more funded, it gets less risky, less speculative for investors. It becomes also a safer space for practicing lawyers or licensed lawyers to consider as part of the design of their career path, whether you're coming out of law school or your early career already licensed, or even if you're mid-career and you're trying to think about whether I stay the course in a more conventional law practice environment, or you consider making a shift into something that is okay, say broadly construed legal tech. It might not be a startup, it might be an established company, but it would be a different way of using those legal skills. As you said earlier when we were talking offline, LegalZoom actually employs a fair number of lawyers. There are blends of opportunities available now to people with law licenses, to people with law degrees. It used to be kind of a marginal thing, you know, the stereotype, you have to go and practice law first and only the quirky, strange people went off and did something in the startup space. Now what I'm hearing in your summary is that the, the scope of the investment, the market having matured a bit. It's not such a quirky, exotic alternative to think about using your law license and going off and collaborating with business people in something that's got a business first sensibility. I want to paraphrase you know, the first legal services uh, summary, which was paper commissioned in UK. And at one point, the, uh, the researcher wrote, lawyers who protest uh, that they are in a profession and not in business will proceed until they are indeed out of business, you know. We have to fight the stigma that making a profit, being a market participant is somehow bad. Market participants create solutions. We said earlier, good heartedness does not seem to be moving the needle, but I think the inflow of investment might, but we, we do have people who are saying, and in writing, we're talking about people who are challenging this work saying, ah, oh, but it's going to attract people who want to make a profit. Yes, it will. How else do you think these things will get done? How else will we create alternatives for people graduating law school who want to do something other than simply continue an increasingly ossified profession? How can we bring about change? Market force should be part of it. My goodness. So the first thing we need to do is, is swat down the stigma of people who, by the way, are at firms where they absolutely measure themselves by profits per equity partner but then turn around and castigate people trying to make reforms as people who might attract people who are looking to make a profit, right? So that's the first thing we need to do. The second thing that we need to do is we really need to, at law schools and places are, you know, Denver's doing it, sure, you know, uh, there are law schools that are saying, look, there's more that you can do than just uh, go work at a law firm or hang a shingle. But my goodness, we need interdisciplinary work. You know, Codex at Stanford is great, but not everybody can go to Stanford. 
We need at the university level interdisciplinary programs that purposefully bring together if for anyone who plays Dungeons and Dragons, fighters and magic users, right? Like we just as with polio, you know, we, we need to say, look, there's money there to be had. So yes, you've got debts, but you've got school debts, but come on, there's money to be had now. And you would be doing something that potentially could transform and bring justice to more people. And if that sounds like a good deal, it's out there and it's happening now. That's a, actually a really, really great place to conclude the podcast for today. We'll have to have you come back. I want to have a follow-up conversation with you about how to build these interdisciplinary collaborations in university environments to kind of accelerate people and content out into the world. That's a, that's a hairy problem of its own. But you've given us a lot to think about and a lot to inspire us. So, Eddie, I really want to thank you for spending time with me today and sharing your wisdom and experience with the listeners to the Future Law Podcast. My pleasure, Mike. And if you, if anyone out there knows a chief justice of a state Supreme Court, please have them listen to this. We need people who are in a position to make a change, uh, make a change. Thanks for listening to the Future Law Podcast. Next week, I'll be chatting with Evan Wong, the founder of Checkbox.ai. Checkbox is a workflow solution for legal environments and recently just closed a series A round in the tens of millions of dollars. If you'd like to share your thoughts about legal tech, startups, or the skill sets needed for the new world of law, then send us an email on futurelawpodcast at gmail.com or you can get in touch with us via Twitter at the Future Law Pod. If you're enjoying our show, please don't hesitate to rate and review us on Apple or Spotify. Thanks to our executive producer and editor, Paria Tahazade. The show is brought to you by Queensland University of Technology. Bye for now. <laughs>